Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at northeastscene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And today, on the show, Philip Jameson of Caspian. This is one I've been working on for a while. This is one we've been waiting for for a while. And we are very excited to bring it to you. We just spoke to him. Spoiler alert, it's an awesome conversation. It's one of the best. I I am... Very, very, very impressed with how this went. Yeah, and that's all we're going to say, because we have to talk about it afterwards, too, as is our set format. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tommy, what's up with you? All right, so it's 2021, right? Today is the first day back to work, Monday. No studying, no bullshit, just regular work. Uh, pressure's off. I'm feeling good. Everything's fine. We are having some good guests and good shows already. I mean, shit, there's nothing to complain about. Well, how are you doing? Great. Uh, today was my first day back as well. Um, I'm getting a little antsy to get back in the classroom, but uh, the more I read about vaccines, the more I'm like, okay, there's a lot of people in healthcare that haven't gotten them yet. I think I can wait off for a little while. <laughs> yeah. And then you got to wait, what, I think it's 30 days in between each dose, so... So what what's what's going on? I don't have anything to talk about. I don't uh I, uh nothing really new on my end. I think one of the big things is uh I'm I'm continuing with my like mathematics leadership stuff. Uh really getting into making sure uh one of the things that they consistently remind me of is that I am the example other teachers should be following. So that means my lesson plans need to be A+ plus they need to be in on time. They need to be like perfectly formatted. And so far, I haven't gotten any, as we call it, feedback about them. So uh, I'm in a good place. I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing well. I feel like I'm comfortable. Um, family's doing great. Like everybody's doing really, really well. The girls are at the point now where they can every night. We always read. We we always had this like tradition every night where we go upstairs. We do a bedtime routine because yes. it really does help kids get settled into like you know making sure certain things happen at certain times. And kids really do kind of like they the girls thrive on it. They do super well when they maintain those routines. I um, love routines. Well, they do so good with it. Like go go upstairs. Get your brush your teeth, get your pajamas on, and then we all like lay in bed. Um, they push their beds together. They have two. They both have a each of them have a double bed, and they decided to make space in their room, a la like stepbrothers, room for activities. Um, they push their beds together, so they now have one big giant like 
California king size bed that they share. So we all kind of hop on the bed and they pick a story that we're reading together. Um, we typically, it takes like three days to get through a story. They're, they're big into chapter books now. Um, so we read it like, you know, a chapter or two every night. Uh, but recently we've been getting into, uh, them reading to us because that's, you know, the skill they should be practicing. It's great to read to them, but also at the same time, they should be reading to us. Yes. It's fucking painful, dude. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to be like, ah, here, this is the word. Yeah. It's so hard, but you know, like my, that's what my, my wife is a reading specialist. Like that's her, that's her thing is working with kids that struggle with reading and decoding and all the other, you know, kind of like subset skills that go into, you know, being able to be a fluent reader. And you can see the look on her face. She's like elated. Like she's so excited that they're, you know, blending sounds together. And in my head, I'm like, okay, so what happened? Did did the fox get away? Like I fucking, (laughs) I lost it. Like I, I, you guys like, (laughs) you guys spent so much time sounding out the words. I have no idea what's happening in this. I lost the plot. It would be really hard because even on this podcast, I'm always trying to move things along. I'm like, all right, we're not talking about that anymore. We're going here. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's nice. Um, again, it's, it's a nice kind of like at like part to add to our routine is like the girls reading to us. But, um, I've, I figured this out. It's really, it's kind of like smart on her end, but Eleanor has figured out that if she chooses lower level books, um, she can read them fluently and it gets done faster. And then they get to the book that they actually want to read, which is the one Kelly and I read to them. Yeah. And she picked a book the other day and she came up on the bed and she started reading it. And Kelly was like, no, 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 don't, don't read right now. Wait till we all get in there. And Ellie was like, no, I'm done. I already read it out loud. And my wife came in and she was like, looked at the book and she was like, you're not reading this book. This is way below your level. You're not reading this. I'm picking the book that you get. And I was like, oh, but that stopped the whole problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, of the, the impatient me of like, can, especially on days like today, like I, you know, I worked from, I, I get up at six and, you know, I'm done teaching at like four and, and then we recorded tonight from what, from six to eight o'clock. And, you know, now it's getting on to be like almost eight thirty or so. And it's like, I'm tired. So when they go upstairs, like I, I'm ready to go to bed. Like I want to get in the shower and I want to go to sleep. And yeah, we should try to record earlier every week. I love this. I love this schedule. Like, I'm going to start pitching uh, six o'clock to our guests. I I, I would 100 percent do this every single week. It's, this is a lot less pressure, and it's I I don't know if it's because of the time change, but I or maybe it's just because like you know I'm like kind of in that like yay I'm back to work and I'm back with the kids and like doing all fun stuff again. It's like I don't know if that's it, but my my mindset was very like. Even though I was nervous going into this interview, I felt really good during it. I was like, "This is going really well." Yeah, and I didn't have t- I didn't have a bunch of time to sit around and be nervous because I finished work, and then it was almost time to do the interview right away. What time do you finish work? Usually five o'clock. Okay. Usually, when it hits five o'clock, I'll shut down and shift to things I want to do. But if we're in the middle of an RFP or something. Shit, there are there are days I'll work from the time I get up at eight a.m. straight till ten p.m. Jesus, yeah, and it just depends. Yeah, do you? How do you? Like, this is actually something I've been kind of like like toying around with, like over winter break. How many times a day do you eat? Two to three. Okay, I'll get one Uber Eats order from the sandwich shop. Okay, 
and I eat the breakfast sandwich, and the lunch sandwich is so filling, I'll eat half before we record, which I did today, and then I'm going to eat the other half when we're done. And it's not quite enough food, but it's enough for me to justify spending the $30 for the food order. Oh, shit. For the day. You know what I mean? $30? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's what we spent at the pizza place the other day for two pizzas and a dozen wings. (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit, dude. I, I... it's a, it's something I try not to do every day because I can't afford it. So tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon, I have to go to the grocery store. I can't spend $30 on food every day this week. I can't. I, yeah. I, I, I've kind of – so I, I started playing with it like uh, right before Christmas, like the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve. I, I skipped breakfast, and then for lunch, I just had – black coffee and a banana and then i ate a really big dinner but i ate my dinner at like 4 45 5 o'clock yeah and i noticed like i you know people go like over winter break or like you know holiday and thanksgiving like they gain weight i i've lost seven pounds in the last 10 days wow yeah and i'm not like an overweight person like relatively <laughs> but like I, I noticed an, an immediate like it uh, my energy is different during the day like i'm not i thought i was going to be like well if i'm not eating i'm gonna be really sluggish um yeah. i've really just replaced eating in the morning which i never was a breakfast person anyway with just uh black coffee and water and that's it you don't yeah. eat in the morning dude i don't eat i i didn't eat today until three o'clock oh jesus christ yeah. i i wouldn't be able to function Breakfast is the best and most important meal of the day. I I I get that, but I I'm like a we're like kind of very loosey goosey with meal planning around our house. So like, there's lots of times where we're like, let's just have dinner for let's have breakfast for dinner, and you know, make waffle, like that. make waffles and pork roll and eggs and you know bagel sandwiches and stuff like that it's really nice and i I like it because also like you said it is my favorite meal like that's my favorite meal of the day is breakfast but breakfast food can be consumed at any time i don't need to fucking eat it at eight o'clock in the morning exactly i'll order pancakes at a diner any time of the day i don't give a shit i don't yeah i have always done that i think actually the, the the diner that my mom and i used to go to when we were younger I didn't care what time of day it was. Uh, I would always get the same order. I would get uh, cream chip beef. Oh. And two buttermilk biscuits. Cream chipped beef? Yeah, dude. Jeez. Oh, so guess what? Here's some news. My promotion slash pay raise is sitting on the board of directors desk uh, waiting to be approved. Now, get this. I asked... You know, we're talking about how, you know, it's going to be approved or it's waiting to be approved. And I asked, I was like, is there a pay bump involved with this position change? And they were like, yes, there is. But I didn't ask how much. Isn't that weird? Oh, I always, I see, I'm like the first person that (laughs) I complain about. I don't complain about money, but I'm very, uh, I'm very cognizant of how much money should be. Like, if there's any type of like, you know, change in my paycheck. I'm immediately, I'm the first person calling payroll and being like, uh, how come it changed? Yeah. 
I, yeah, I know exactly what amount I should be getting. Yeah, and, and uh, but why wouldn't I ask how much my raise is? Like, what if they're only giving me a thousand dollars? That's not cool. No, for all the think about it, all the work you've put into this, <laughs> all the hours you've spent. You know, that's like a you you made thirty cents a you made thirty cents an hour for all that extra work. <laughs> it's a, like I I that's one of the cool parts about working where I work is that we have the like we have the you get merit pay, so you get paid based on you know how well you perform in the classroom, but also. Um, you can negotiate your salary to a certain extent. I mean, you can't come in and be like, you know, I need $120,000. Um, but you can, um, you know, basically make a case for yourself to be, there's a, you know, there's a salary scale and you can make a case for yourself to be like, Hey, I've been here for X number of years. Um, I feel like I should be bumped up from this level to that level. And here's why. Um, if you, I've done it before where I've made a pretty decent case for myself and they've been like, all right, well, we're not going to bump you up to the complete level, but what do you think about meeting like half of the way? I'm like, what about three quarters of the way? And they're like, that sounds great. And then we're done. (laughs) Well, I, here's what I think. I, I guess it has to get approved and then they're going to give me a paper to sign. And then maybe that's when I can approve or disapprove. How should I do it? I don't know. I feel like if the paper's in front of you already, it's too late. Hmm. Right? Because the number's going to be written on there. Yeah. So, see, I'm bad at this stuff. My thing is, is like, I've learned everything about negotiation from movies and TV shows. I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know if that's real. <laughs> it's like, I got this shit. Half of it's from fucking Wolf of Wall Street. I don't fucking know. All right. So next week, I'll ask, how much is the raise? Yeah. I would even just send the email and be like, oh, I'm just really curious. I'm trying to budget for the upcoming year. How much is the increase going to be precisely? That's a great idea. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, look, I, I'm full of good ideas sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, not most of the time, just sometimes. Sometimes I'll take. All right, folks, here's our conversation with Philip Jameson of Caspian. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Philip Jameson. Philip, welcome to the show. What's happening? Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate you mixing it up last minute, too, with my little curveball to do it a couple hours earlier. That was, that was nice of you guys to be flexible, man. Hey, man, no problem. You're one of our favorite musicians, so we're very excited to talk to you and have you on the show. So let me start with an easy question. How are you doing today? Today? Um, well, it's, yeah, it's January 3rd. 2021 so it's a new year and i feel like a new man right it's like everything's different now and um no i actually today i feel pretty good yeah i am up in new hampshire so for the winter i decamped up to my folks farm they have like a farm up here it's about an hour and a half from where i live in massachusetts and yeah the way things were kind of going you know throughout the sort of phantasmagoria i guess of this hellscape of this pandemic thing um i decided to kind of pull the trigger on where i was living in massachusetts and come up here for the winter so i'm two months into a little six month jaunt up here and it definitely took me a little while to kind of find my bearings like just get my sea legs up here just because you know it's my parents house um yeah but uh yeah, it, it, it's nice. I, I finally feel like I've kind of reached some cruising altitude up here. And maybe just because it's the first Monday of the new year and the holidays are in the rear view now, I'm just, yeah, felt felt pretty good today. Went out and did some grocery shopping and 
fed fed the animals here and just a bunch of like farm shit. So it was good, man. Yeah, I feel all right. How about you guys? I'm good, man. You know, I recently passed a really hard certification exam, something for work that I was working on for a year. Done. I've got this podcast where I get to talk to the musicians I love every week. Got that going. I might have some new musical projects in the work for in the works for this year. Uh, I still have a job. You know, family's doing great. I don't have too much to complain about today. How about you, Tommy? Uh, today was my first day back teaching since our Christmas break. And uh, I was just, I'm just elated when I see the kids. It's just so nice to like see them and see their faces. I really wish I could see them in person still. That's yeah. a huge bummer. And that is a constant reminder of like, look, we're in the midst of this. And when we get there, we're going to be able to do it. And we're going to be able to do it safely. I, I actually got an email from my boss. Um, and, you know, he was explaining like, look, there's a lot of schools that are going back and then they end up having to be out for two weeks and they go back and then they're out yeah. for another week. And, they, you know, uh, whether it's staff shortages or there is like a, a significant number of COVID cases or whatever's going on. And he was like, look, we're doing this right. And when we go back, we're staying back. So that's good. And I was good. like, it, it was just, it's just really nice and reassuring to know that like you have somebody at the helm that like is confident and like kind of speaks with that, like, Hey, we got your best interest in mind. Like that was super awesome. So I'm doing phenomenal today. Like I, I was just excited to be back in the class and teaching stuff today. It was just lots of division of fractions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's back to work today. It's, it's interesting. Uh, it feels a little weird. But shit, I don't have to worry about studying every day anymore, so I'm happy to just be back doing regular work. But, Philip, let me ask you. So you're living with your parents right now. Does that mean you see them every day? You eat with them every day? Is it that type of deal? Oh, no, no. Yeah, I mean, if that was the case, and I mean, I love my parents, but if, if that was part of the bargain, I, I don't think I could hack it. <laughs> um, <it's> like, <laughs> That's why I asked, because, yeah. look, I love my parents, too, and I'm grateful for everything they've given me, but... We're not the best roommates. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, my parents are great people, um, but I mean, I got the you know domesticated having parents thing out of my system like 20 years ago, and there's really no, right. there's no going back to that. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've got a they've got a spread up here. It, it's kind of wild. Um, there's there's a bunch of animals. There's 10 hogs and there's 15 alpacas. And oh, there, nice. there were like 30 chickens. Those went down for Thanksgiving, obviously. It's just that there's a spread up here and the house has like a basement apartment where I've got, you know, like my own bedroom and, uh, you know, kitchen and bathroom and living room and all that stuff. So, I mean, I, I could I could come up here and just sort of disappear down here and really not see anyone uh, for as long as I as I wished if, if I so desired, but it's nice. Cause when I want to pop back upstairs and like get some human interaction, I can do that. That was one of the things that was kind of missing when I was back home on my own in Massachusetts was, you know, I, I'm a, I, I'm a very like a fairly hermetic person. I can definitely get it done like on my lonesome by myself, yes. but the whole nature of the pandemic, we're really doubling down on that. Um, it was just like it did that for you know seven or eight months, and look looking down the barrel of another you know however much longer four or five months of it just didn't seem like the best idea I guess for my for my mental mental well being. So yeah, I, I have a good balance up here. I can I can see you know people when I want to, and then I can just sort of disappear 
uh, when I want to at my own leisure as well. So I, I'm just really lucky to have a, a space like this to come up to. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm sure there's a bunch of other people out there who were riding it out solo like I was that if they had an opportunity like this just would have, would have taken it in a second. So I didn't really balk at it and it's good. Yeah. But I, I can still do my own thing, which is kind of mission critical to me. You know what I mean? I, yeah, and that's a smart move, you know, putting yourself with some people because I'm an isolationist by nature and I'm I'm actually really happy that I'm in a relationship that I got into not not too before the pandemic started. So I have that connection now. You know, I have a girlfriend, she has a kid, we're a, like a family unit now. Uh, I've got people I can talk to. I've got people who rely on me to a degree, and that's good. So, Philip, what do you do to pass the time on the farm? I mean, what are your interests? Like me, uh, I could spend all day on YouTube watching game streamers or play video games or work on yeah. podcast stuff. I, I or... spend a lot of time on YouTube. That YouTube premium account is clutch. Um, <laughs> for me, it's kind of been like, it's definitely... Yeah, that's kind of been my go-to since this all dropped in March. Um, yeah. I I don't know. It sounds wicked nerdy. It's just like, I, I like the way they curate algorithms and shit like that. No, for I, it's, it's so like, dead on. It really, it's kind of scary. Like, yeah. And I'm such a huge, a huge, huge fan of YouTube when it comes to, there are people that have like literally curated entire collections of live shows of oh, things yeah. that that's my, I've that's my never jam. seen. Yeah. My my daughter, so I I have three kids, but my youngest daughter is now obsessed. We watched, uh, well, she didn't watch all of it, but she was uh, she was in the room when we were watching Matilda, uh, you know that movie with Danny DeVito mm-hmm. and yeah. Rita yeah. Perlman, um, and that song by, uh, oh my gosh, it's going to escape me now, but it's it's the the oh my, I, I can't even name what's the goddamn name that of it? sounds Rusted, like Rusted Root. It's the name <laughs> of the band. Oh yeah, that's the uh, semi I'm away. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> she, for some reason, is upset. Like every time that song comes on, like she's not like she's started, like learning how to walk now. But as soon as that song comes on, she's like a proficient walker, and she's starting to dance. So we were just like tooling around on YouTube one day, and I found uh, I was like, oh, let me just look that up. And instead of that coming up, their live performance of them at Woodstock. I think 99 came up and we put it up on the TV. Oh man. She, I've seen like, that. Yeah. Philip, we watched it like 10 times in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. It was, it was incredible. And it's like, also they're a really tight live band. Really. They tight. were the first, one of the first, um, so I grew up religious. I'm no longer religious. Um, but I, I grew up Christian. And so I was inundated with Christian rock growing up and different, you know, um, you know, CCM, I can't even remember what CCM stands for anymore, but it's something Christian, something music, maybe Christian contemporary music. Anyway, um, I would see all those bands and all those artists, you know, from a very young age. And the very first secular show I ever got to see was uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant at the Boston Garden. And, you know, Jimmy Page is, he's the guy um, that sort of got me into this to begin with. I'm still a, a huge Zeppelin fan. And opening up for them was Rusted Root. And I, I remember I had heard one of their songs maybe on the radio or something. I, I can't remember where. Maybe it was on MTV. But 
one of the records that I had a lot of babysitters growing up just because both my parents worked and our, every babysitter loved Paul Simon's Graceland record that was just like on constant rotation. <laughs> I'm going to Graceland. Yeah. I mean, I could do, I could recite that entire record um, melodically, lyrically, front to back. That was just like a centerpiece of every like 80s babysitter. I have no idea why. I mean, it was a great record. Um, <laughs> Must have been a time and place thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would be cool to sort of rewind the clock and figure out why. But I remember hearing Rusted Root and it obviously, you know, it was still quite young, but it had some of the, you know, the world music African beat vibes. And it was like almost hearkening back to that. So it was already nostalgic in a way when I remember hearing it, but they were they were cool, man. And they were really popularizing something that besides Graceland really wasn't sort of in the collective like popular ether, I guess. I mean, I don't know yeah. if they had a much of a shelf life or not, but um, I, I do remember. I, well, it's funny you mentioned Woodstock 99 because like I go on Woodstock 94, 99 deep dives speaking of YouTube like all the time. I've bothered everyone in my – like whenever we get together with the band – like the day will end with me just like giving a lecture on like Woodstock 99. (laughs) All the just insane performances and then it degenerating into this like just jock fire clash and everything. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, because, you know, in my algorithm, Limp Bizkit's set popped up from Woodstock 99 and I watched some of it and I was just marveling and I was like, this was the top music in the country at some point. (laughs) And like, you don't even see bands on television anymore, on talk shows, on anything. And this is like, this is very interesting. Yeah. So how old are you guys, out of curiosity? We're both 38, right, Tommy? Yeah. Are you okay. 38? Yeah. Right on. So, yeah, I'm 41. So, I mean, you don't, when that was going down in the late 90s, um, do you remember much about it? Like, not to go on a new it, it metal was on tangent. The, it was but. on the evening news. I think they led with that story was like showing all like the loot, like the fires and people looting all like the the merch trucks and stuff like that. And it it was one of those ones where I was like, oh my god! And it was funny. It was my older my one of I have five sisters. One of my older sisters was actually had tickets and couldn't get off of work and ended up selling her tickets to one of her college roommates. Oh wow. And my yeah. mom was like, I'm so glad you didn't go to that stupid concert. Uh, yeah, I'm, I certainly, I think everyone remembers the 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 debauchery and the... Um, yes. I mean, that that was definitely like the lead takeaway from Woodstock 99, and that probably why they haven't done one again since. Um, yeah, because it, it was so bad. There was, you know, like groping women during stage oh, diving, yeah. and they yeah. were charging people $10 for water, and they were dropping like flies from dehydration. Right. And you had like the Limp Bizkit corn crowd, who probably weren't the, the most sensitive crowd. So, I mean, there was a lot of factors at play. <laughs> there there was a lot going on culturally with it. And then now that I can sort of see it from a, a distance, like a, t- you know, a 20-year vantage point or whatever... Um, it was a really fascinating musical confluence going on because you had you had these guys coming out of like when I picture Corn, you remember Corn's performance from that? It was so iconic. It was almost okay. like there was the Nine Inch Nails performance from '94 where they you know were slathered in mud and stuff, and that was like something new was happening here. Like this is the they were like torchbearers for something that no one had had speaking of being made popularized was just really not out there yet and then when you were yeah. watching 9 inch nails in 94 it was like that it felt like the future it felt like you were watching 
you know, some kind of dark cloud roll in that was just going to rain on everyone for years in a, in a beautiful <laughs> way, you know. And then in 99, I, I kind of got that same vibe when I watched the corn set just because it was like, I mean, something they were playing like drop C's and stuff, and it was just really guttural. Um, I pictured those guys just sort of rising. I mean, I was like 20 years old or whatever, but. I just pictured them rising out of hell and playing that set or something, you know, like <laughs> I wasn't familiar with like, like doom metal or death, not that they're either of those things, but I, I wasn't really familiar with like the, just like the heavier, sludgier, nastier, guttural side of metal at that point in my life. And yeah. And I have friends who are a little older than me that said them when, when Korn came out that first record, they were just this new interesting band yeah. there was nothing else like it and i remember getting into them i think during the second album and it was just really scary stuff right. i don't know it was there, there wasn't much like it it was like scary interesting music they didn't print the lyrics in the booklets so you were always wondering what they were talking about it was mm -hmm. i mean before it became what it became it was what it was if that makes any sense Absolutely. Yeah, it had a it had a salient there was something about it that kind of went right through all the bullshit and all of the peripheral yes. whatever and just really connected with kids on on a really powerful like, you know, intrinsic place and that doesn't really happen all the time, but I I remember feeling it when I was watching that set and being like, yeah, where did these guys come from? And now I'm like, oh, they definitely just came out from the mall, you know what I mean? Like they, <laughs> they just they, like kind of like Limp Bizkit there just like suburbia mall rat dudes but and i don't even mean that like pejoratively like in a bad way i mean it was like they were just responding to like whatever suburban angst was going on with them and they were doing it in this way that was like really music to, i think musically really creative and you watch that set of theirs and i don't know what the song that it starts with but it's one of the i, I don't know any of their song titles or anything i can't even name one of their records um, <laughs> But it was the one that's like, you know, oh, are you ready? And then blind. the blind. That's blind. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. blind. That's it. And it, they really milked, much like Nine Inch Nails again, they, they milk the opening for like five minutes, just creating all this tension. And when it finally drops and it finally hits, I mean, it's a, it's a little 30 seconds of YouTube that everyone should watch. Like, it, it's a 100,000 people just going fucking insane. Like, yeah, I don't even like corn anymore, and I, I'm going to go watch it right when we're done. <laughs> I mean, when it drops, and it's also the way the camera pans over, like the way that they were, I mean, it's all this primitive, like, camera work, but, like, the way that they captured the band, on, it, it's a shot from behind, and then it just sort of pans from, like, behind the band out into the crowd, and it's just like, it, it's like Sodom or something. It's fucking awesome, you know? So, like, Philip, can I just, I, I want to comment on this. You have clearly, like, when you're talking about things, you have an eye for cinematography. Mm. Do you ever see, like, a connection? Like, when you're writing music, do you, can you see something that goes along with it visually? Or do you, do you have that kind of, like, Oh yeah, something yeah. has an aesthetic that you're like, holy shit, this, this feels like this moment or without a doubt yeah i i say this a lot and um i don't know you know if people believe it or not but like i mean i love music music is uh obviously like the biggest part has become the biggest part of my life and it, it's been just a, a massive aspect of who i am and you know the, the bands that i love and records that i celebrate and all that are a big deal but 
um, when I'm when I'm writing and creating, I, I very rarely, if ever, it's not really a response to like a record that I've heard or a band that I want to emulate or something. It's almost always like just some sort of, and it sounds super pretentious, but like it's just some kind of vision that I have in my head that's often fairly cinematic. And there are colors, and there's a terrain, and there's um, maybe sometimes characters, and um, it, it's yeah, it sort of constructing like a really a really vivid almost like geography and a a psychosphere to something is really what gets me off and that's what gets me like picking up my guitar and writing writing down music and, and recording songs and, and all of that it, it really to me it's like a very visual based medium um even though it's so based around like sonics and stuff you know um that's incredible yeah like I think you start out emulating the bands that you love and then you get to the place that you're talking about, Philip, because, you know, I, I've had that experience in smaller degrees. Like my favorite song that I ever wrote in my last band, the title of the song came to me in a dream from like something, a sentence someone said love to it. me in a dream. And I was like, holy shit, that's, that's fucking Have cool. you ever, the best is, have you ever written a song in a dream and then woken up and then... And then, like, did your best to recapture it, because that, that's, some, that's some fucking cool shit, if you ever get the chance, man. Yes, I've had this melody in my head for probably four years. I've never written it down or tried to translate it to an instrument, but I still remember it, so I know that's got to be a banger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, find a way, find a way to get it down. You know what I'm saying? It's it's a lot of magical things. Well, I don't know what the word is magical, really. I'm not sure what it is, but a lot of things happen in our in our uh, dream conscious that are really interesting. I, I think a lot of stuff that's going on there is stuff that um, I wish we kind of paid a little bit more attention to. You know what I mean? You know, it's really funny is you just bring that up. My daughters really like this show on Netflix. Um, I think it's called brain games or brain it has something oh, yes. with brain I've, in the title i've heard it, of this yeah it, brain child that's it and and they talk about one, one of the episodes is entirely about dreaming and your rem cycle but they said um there's a significant amount of researchers out there that think that uh the evolutionary function of dreaming is to kind of relive parts of your life or things that have happened during your day that maybe your unconscious is saying this didn't go quite the way we wanted it so you're kind of forced to relive it and then remember it. And if, like you said, pay a, more, a little bit more attention to it, the next time you encounter something like that, you may treat it a little bit differently or, or approach it in a different way because you're like, hey, I've already gone through this before, whether I was aware of it or not. And I have to be a little bit more calculated about my reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the I mean Native Americans especially and I'm I'm sure that this is well documented in other worlds um like just other sort of like uh tribal cultures as well, but I mean the the dream world to them was something that had absolute primacy. I mean that was almost more important than their waking life and a lot of their culture was just completely constructed around um you know what what happened in in the dream world, who could interpret it, what were the best sort of like memories, which could you like sift through that was sort of complicated or uncomplicated thoughts and feelings. Um, and that's why it was, it was really central to their culture. Um, and I love that. I think that's something that we've certainly like grown away from, but then there's little, you know, things like that, that I can't remember what the name of the show was. Uh, Brainchild. 
Brainchild, yeah. There's there's things that sort of harken back to that. And of course, you know, a bunch of psychologists in the 20th century, like Carl Jung and stuff, they started to pay really deep attention to that and give that, they started to sort of give the focus back to that world. Freud did that a bunch too. And um, I think that was that was really important. I can't tell if we're drifting away from that again, just because technology's become so ubiquitous and in our face and, and omnipresent and it's everywhere and it's just sort of fallen to the wayside or we're going to have some sort of resurgence where we kind of start giving a little bit more credence back to that stuff. You know, it's going to be interesting to see. I think one of the things about this pandemic and not being able to move freely and, um, you know, do the normal rhythms and routines with other people and, and, being transient and traveling around as much as we used to and stuff is like that sort of the stillness. I don't know if people are sleeping more per se. I know people are flush with anxiety, so maybe that mitigates sleeping, but I think just being kind of stiller than we have been and having these eight or nine months where you can sort of slow down for most people. um, Even if you're, you know, you're working from, from home or whatever, or you're recently unemployed, whatever it may be, that stillness is a really good opportunity to sort of interrogate what's going on up in your, you know, your, your subconscious and your dream world. And a lot of the things that have just sort of been affected, I would like to hope, I would like to think in, or hope maybe in like a positive way from all of this, you know, it could be like a positive byproduct from just having like a, a different, taking a completely like different course and a different trajectory um, I don't want to say spiritually, but maybe emotionally and physically throughout all this. Do you know what I mean? I know it sounds kind of heavy and shit. But yeah, like... I would like to get to that point, but I'm not ready because. All right. So I, before I had to take this exam, right, you're not allowed to have TV or radio or anything on, obviously. And I had to sit there for about 20 minutes and wait for the proctor to come on to start the exam. That's the first time possibly ever that I just sat there with my own thoughts no YouTubes, no podcasts, no radio, no music, no nothing. And I felt insane. Insane. But I'm doing a lot of work on myself, and I would like to get to a point where I don't need something on every second of the day to uh, calm that voice or that anxiety or whatever Yeah, that's it is. what people are now are calling the, the price of distraction, right? Is because we have... All uh, now that we have these phones in our pockets, and I'm not taking a, a shit on phones or whatever. I mean, I have one, and I'm glued to it all the time. I I wish I was a little less, yeah. you know. Um, but now that we have, I mean, we have these devices in our pocket that basically, I mean, they contain more information than any like one in the history of humanity has ever been uh, available to. Like, I mean, you can know anything. Pretty much, I mean, just in, in terms of information-wise, notice we haven't got more sophisticated in terms of our, like, emotional depth. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. phones can't teach us that. <laughs> um, they can't teach us how to be, like, you know, more physically sophisticated. But in terms of just access to knowledge and basically, you know, not being bored and having distractions all the time, um, we're sort of being conditioned to never be bored. And to not like, I mean, I don't know, when I was little, and you guys probably remember this, remember like sitting at like waiting at the doctor's office or something, and it's like, there's only so many magazines you can read there, and then like the magazines are done, and then you kind of have to just fucking stare at the wall or something. You have to like stare at your foot. You know, you're looking outward when you're doing that. You're looking at the, the color of the wall, or you're looking at the secretary's, you know, hair color, or you're looking at... Uh, the shape of a desk and whatever. 
uh, you're looking outward, but you know, with technology being so omnipresent now, it's like we're it's drawing us inward into ourselves, and it's creating a kind of anxiety that's interesting for people at our age, just because we, we know what things were like prior. We know what the other side is like when you are when you can be bored, and it's possible to just like drift off into your bored thoughts, and then who knows what's going to happen? But you're still sort of interrogating that which is around you. Um, kids now. Uh, it's got to be tough for them, man. Like the the anxiety level for children. I was talking with my sister about this, uh, who has five kids. They also live here. This is like a big compound here. If you haven't got yeah the idea yet, um, I mean their anxiety, and it's not even kids' fault, you know, but their anxiety levels are just off the charts because if there isn't a a device or something to just hide and escape and ameliorate into. Uh, you just start to lose your mind, and I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit, right? Where you just what what did it feel like? Was it just like everything sort of slowly melting? Was it like ginger ale in the brain or something, or was it like it's just like scattered thoughts like all over mm. the place? Like I'm thinking of this now, I'm thinking of this. I have to do that. Like yeah. it's just like a directionless panic, and I I'm like that. Like when I I can only be outside now for like three hours. Sometimes less, and then I have to like run home to all my yeah, devices. Right. And you're and you know you're not alone. Everybody is. Yeah, it, it's telling us something really interesting about the human condition, about what it means to be human. Um, I don't think anyone really knows what it is yet. I think a lot of people are sounding some alarm bells, especially when it comes. I mean, something like social media. That's a little bit more obvious, right? Because. Yeah. You're curating a sense of self that may or may not be authentic, and then you're bouncing it off other people, and then your identity gets sort of enmeshed with that. And that's that's a little bit more on the nose. But yeah, when it comes to ha- having devices and uh, like just YouTube's or whatever, which aren't necessarily, which don't really seem like an ego project so much, right? I mean, they're just sort of these are things I enjoy, and I'm. It's just stuff, yeah. With with social media, it can get dicey. Like, I think it's important to have a responsible level-headed group of people that you can talk to on a regular basis because i used to be well i'm still fucking nuts but i used to be way fucking crazier like i would be on social media and track who unfollowed me and then go unfollow them and then get mad if this person's talking to that person or (laughs) why isn't this person talking to me and i had apps that like tracked who unfollowed me and when and i have to unfollow them right when they unfollow me because I don't want it to be uneven, and I was, it was fucking nuts. So I have like a certain rule set in place now to to keep me from all that. That struggle is is very very real. I don't think anyone listening to this has not done the same exact shit. Uh, yeah. And if they say they haven't, I guarantee you they're lying. But I'm <laughs> I'm I'm really interested in how you how you. So you alluded to how you started to vanquish that. Um, it was just surrounding yourself with a. A group of people where that weren't beholden to the, the to the whole rat race of that, or what? What was it exactly? I mean, I guess uh, I would love for you to just elaborate on that a little because everyone also is is looking for like a way to be inoculated from just you know that that hamster wheel, dude. Yes. Yeah, so, so, hearkening back to the exam that I was talking about, this is a good example. Look up uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's this triangle, and and in each level is a different need, right? And I think on the very bottom is safety, and then you go to safety, and then you need shelter. And then when you have shelter, you can have friendship, uh, connections with other people. 
And then after friendships and connections with other people, you get to... Uh, it's something like self-actualization or something. Yeah, self-actualization right, yeah. is yeah. the last. And then under that is like self-confidence or something to that, de uh, that degree. And it's kind of like yeah, that. Yeah. Like I, It was a slow process of one, uh, not spending $150 on drugs every day anymore. Uh, two, you know, like actually talking to people again. Three, doing a lot of introspective work on myself. Let's see. Yeah, there was some therapy and medication in there. I, I don't really do that anymore, but uh, a lot of work, a lot of introspection, a lot of rejection, a lot of conversations, a lot of uh, discovery, and eventually you just build up your self-confidence to the point that I don't give a fuck anymore. Like, I'm happy. I don't have to look at this imagined world fuck of... Yeah something i'm not a part of i have my own world i have my own things going on so all the imagined shit doesn't really matter anymore absolutely well i mean bravo man that's yeah that's that's the that's the center of the bullseye right there and i i think that's just fucking great man i love to hear that especially the the conversational element of it because when we make ourselves like this, for example, you know, you make yourself available to conversation and you never really know how it's going to go. And right. you, you want to assume that the people coming into conversation with you are coming in on good faith, you know, yes. that it's not like a uh, an egotistical uh, self-absorbed ambition or something like that. Uh, you want to assume that it's like, you know, uh, a two-way conversation and there's listening involved, which is obviously the goal. Um, but again, it's a, a lot of the things about technology and, you know, social media, the things we were talking about, um, they really do reinforce the sort of singular ego and they really do make us like sort of just constantly look inward at ourselves all the time and do this self interrogation that really in the end does, isn't really conducive to, to conversation or especially listening. And it sounds like you were able to talk and converse with some people that actually wanted to just fucking listen to you. You know what I mean? It was really funny. So I, I've gotten in the last like two years or so very, very interested in all different fields and studies of, of economics. And one of the guys I've been watching uh, fairly – I kind of skip around. But one of the guys I've been watching a little bit of recently is this um, guy. I think he won the Nobel Prize in 84. His name's Milton Friedman. Um, yeah, he's a big yeah. proponent of like uh, capitalism. And he actually did a – I want to say it was like about an hour and keep in mind, this was like in, I think 1987. So it was on Phil Donahue. Remember the Phil Donahue talk show? Uh, hell yeah. yeah. It was yeah. Like right on. Like it was Sally, Jesse Raphael, then Phil Donahue. Uh, but he was on there and towards the end, you know, he, he literally just did a Q and a session that went super long. And if you search it up on YouTube, there's, I think it's, it's almost like a two hour video of him just answering people's questions. And Donahue tries to break in at one point and goes, uh, Mr. Friedman, don't you have a book? And he looks right at him. He goes, do you think anybody here cares about that? <laughs> Let's get to this poor woman's question. Anyway, as I was saying, capital economy. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful because he, he literally was like, do you think anybody – he goes, like, the book is going to sell or it's not. Like me sitting here telling you, yeah, the book's out now. Go get it. Anyway, back to this person's question. He really like kind of eschewed all of that. He was like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not playing into this whole thing of like, I came on here with an agenda. I came on here to, you know, do some type of like in my head, like social calculus. So, like if I, if I mention the book this many times, it's going to 
you know, it'll, you know, give this many sales. Like, no, he, he wanted to give out solid information and information that he thought was correct and try to back it up as best as he could. And it, I we, love that because, uh, do you ever hear like an artist freak out during an interview and they're like, it's in the book. It's in the book. Like, we don't, like, why are you on the show then if you just want people to read the book? I mean, you're there to have a conversation. Yeah, just just regurgitate it line in place from the book. Yeah, it's difficult <laughs> because, I mean, when when you're looking at, you, you're constantly curating a sense of self, which, like we said earlier, is real or fake, most of the time fake, or at least, you know, 80% fake. Come on. You yeah. know, um, the last thing you want to do is just sort of like hear someone's question out or listen to someone's sort of, I don't know, especially I'm noticing this a lot now with, uh, with debate, I guess, for lack of a better term, but I don't know, like, I'm deb- well, <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I'm self-debating <laughs> in my mind, but like, I think of, uh, I think of someone like, um, like Joe Rogan, for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. You guys ever heard of Joe Rogan? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, he gets a lot of shit. I, I don't really I don't really listen to him a ton. I guess if there's like a good guest, I'll listen. Or, or a guest that like, you know, you'll read like the two or three sentence bio of the person. And it's like, yeah, right. this might be something I enjoy. I'll enjoy. Like the MMA stuff and all that. Like I just, I'm not, I'm not interested in. So I just sort of tap yeah. out of that. Right. Um, <laughs> the MMA stuff I tap out on. Did you hear what I did? <laughs> I didn't. That, that was, and it's that, also, I do the same thing because you'll see somebody on there and he'll have like, hey, this is a notable, you know, noted particle physicist, or this is a mathematician from Columbia. And you're like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. But right, it's like, exactly. hey, we have, you know. But we, even when it comes into the world of, of politics or whatever, I mean, I'm interested in what people's perspectives are, even if they're not the same as mine, okay? Like, I, mm-hmm. I want to listen to people uh, debate a topic. I want to listen to people uh, discuss something, like two people in good faith, entering a conversation in good faith, um, discuss it, and not in a way that sort of uh, smacks of their ego or is super self-absorbed or is whatever. I, I want to listen to two intelligent people hash a difficult idea out together, and I'm not really... I'm not really scared of that. Like, again, someone could come in, like, I don't know. I mean, Joe Rogan is maybe not, I guess maybe he's a decent example because he does have a lot of different types of guests on there. I mean, more often than not, they lean to the right end of the spectrum, which isn't my end of the spectrum, right? Um, Yeah. Necessarily. But I'm still interested and curious to like, listen to what the, I want to listen to what these people have to say. I want to hear a discussion happen in good faith in real time between two human beings of diverging perspectives or sharing perspectives or whatever. And I'm not scared of it. I'm not like, it doesn't, it doesn't freak me out. I'm not going to throw up like the cancel flag and be like, this is fucking absurd. No one should be listening to this. Like I'd much rather like bring it on, absorb it, and then run it through my own sort of set of filters and sort of encourage whatever thought I want to impart into it, whatever. I think to get, I mean, come full circle to what I guess I'm trying to blurt out here is that like, I think we're, we're even getting afraid of that now. Like people, like we're, we're not even, we're not even like interested in hearing people with diverging perspectives discuss anything that we don't like necessarily agree with because it's such a trigger. It's such an incendiary uh, moment that just like throws us 
you know, against the wall and we, and we can't even tolerate like receiving opinions that aren't like just lock lockstep with ours. Do, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? It does. 100%. And I, I fall into that cause I'm really, really err on the left side of things and I don't accept yeah. the system as a whole. So even with like centrist lib opinions, I'm like, I don't want to hear it, but I try not to fall into the trap of like, if someone isn't saying exactly what I want to hear, I'm not going to listen to it. Because if you're only listening to your own bullshit all the time, you're not going to learn anything. That's exactly. And you're going to isolate yourself from per- a lot of people. Perfect so, way to put it. Yeah. 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 So if it's if if it's like far right weird, if it's far right weirdos, I'm not going to listen to it at all because there's usually a lot of racism and yeah. other bad stuff associated with that. But if it's like center or center left or I don't know liberal, okay, I'll I'll. I'll listen to what's going on to some degree. I think there's something that there. So I actually saw a whole thing about this the other day. There's a, a kind of phenomenon they've kind of dubbed uh, confirmation bias. So it's like, oh yeah, dude. You know, it, I I I think something. Therefore, I search out information that backs up my opinion. You don't look for things like I think corn is the best vegetable ever phenomenal. <laughs> I'm going to go out and only find things that support that. So if I find somebody that says like corn is terrible, it's like, fuck, I'm not even listening to that. Whereas, you know, I, I remember when I was growing up, my mom used to try to make us watch like a very like heady intellectual things, even when we were younger. And I'm, we were all like kind of roll our eyes at it. But now I kind of think back and like, there was a show uh, my mom used to, she had like VHS tapes of it. It was called Firing Line um, with mm. William Buckley. And okay, William Buckley that's was this so guy. Weird. I was just going to mention that. Holy Get shit. out. Really? Is that what you're going to bring up? Well, no, because yeah, it, William F. Buckley Jr., his conversation. So he started National Review. Yeah. Um, his conversations, I, I think they were with Noam Chomsky, I want to say. Yeah. There was um, one with Noam Chomsky. There's a bunch with him and Gore Vidal used to Gore fucking Vidal. hash yeah. it out, man. Go crazy. Him and James Baldwin used to go at it. Yes. But yeah. At the end of the show, they shook hands and said, you know, thank you so much for being on, like a guest. Like it, it. There was no, like there was clearly animosity, but they really left the fighting to the, like to the argument in itself. Like, it, and I think a lot of times, especially today, we're so guilty of we read one thing, and either we believe it or we search out information that backs up what we believe, and then when you find something to the contrary, you're like, how can these people lie about that? Yeah, and then you find out maybe they're actually not lying and maybe what you thought in the first place wasn't necessarily right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just these, these things that you come upon that uh, I remember when we were younger, my mom would make us watch that. And, you know, uh, I always think of uh, my daughters and I watch, we, we try to watch a lot of old TV at the house. Like, because like a lot of the new TV they watch is like garbage. Like the YouTube stuff is a bunch of kids unboxing, you know, toys and playing with them and shit. It's like, no, you're supposed to play with your toys. You do the imagination part of this. You don't watch some kid go like, hi, I'm, you know, Ariel. Like, no, you, you fucking do that. Like, that's your job. Um, so we've been watching a lot of old TV and my, my wife commented, we were watching an episode of Gilligan's Island and she was like, who the hell talks like that? Cause it was, uh, you know, Thurston, Howe the third. And he has that very like bottom. Jaw oh yeah. Out. The old sitcom rich person voice. <laughs> Bro, that's exactly what fucking William F. Buckley Jr. sound like. He was I'm, the I'm not exaggerating. He, he Go and watch like the video of him. Yeah. It is fucking. He he seems like he's like Dan a, Aykroyd from uh, Trading Places. Worse. He was he always chewing on the side of his glasses, and yeah. he was 
He had a very sort of like he had this British Southern thing that was very difficult. It sort of Rice sounds British right now, but then it's like, but it had a sort of Southern charm to it. He just sounded sophisticated as fuck. You know, look, yeah. when I wrote God and Man at Yale, I, I did not think. And it's like, holy shit, that guy, and my perfect, wife, I yeah. put it on TV and she was like, oh, my God, that's a real person. And I was like, yeah. and she's <laughs> like, it almost seems like a caricature of somebody. And I'm like, no, this is that old, like that old like New England old money. He was he was a like Yale man through and through. Like he was one of those people that embodied that type of um that high-minded rhetoric, but at the same time, there was like a kind of like, like almost like a, what do you call that? An affectation that he would put on his voice. Like, uh, you know, uh, I, I remember the first time I ever heard <laughs> Keith, you'll laugh at this one. Keith, do you ever hear that old phone call on Stern where Gilbert Godfrey calls in sick? <laughs> Oh, I can't remember. Oh great, my god, though. it's Gilbert Godfrey calling, and he's just like, "Oh, oh," and it's his real voice. And it's his real voice, and he's like, "Hey, Howard, uh, it's Gilbert. I just, I'm not going to be able to come in." And it's not yeah. like, the, like the over the top, "I'm Gilbert," like that whole like. <laughs> it's not the the fake comic voice, yeah. Oh, no, it's like, oh my god, that's what Gilbert Godfrey actually sounds like. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I I think Philip, back to your like the original point of like people. I think now, especially. Um, I've seen this a lot where uh, I work in a, in an urban school and I've seen this fairly often where there's been times where there, uh, my, as my, my sister calls it, it's the Kafka trap. And I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, and she's yeah. like, uh, it's, it's the idea behind of like, well, you know, all right, I say you're something. If you deny it, well, that's what a denier would do. They would project that behavior onto someone else, or they would say, absolutely not, I don't do that. Or the converse side of that is you admit to it. So I, I've seen these things go horribly wrong when we have these like what are supposed to be anti-racist training, like, you know, work towards, you know, equality and things like that. And, you know, people will come up they, and they pay these speakers like enormous amounts of money and they'll say things like, you know, you're implicitly biased and you're a racist. And it's like, well, wait, I don't think I'm a racist. I've dedicated 10 years of my life to working in in this school. Like I, I, I left a career working in a law firm where I was making very good money to do this. Like, mm. I, I don't I, I mean, I, I can acknowledge certain biases I have, whether conscious or unconscious, but you can't outright call me something. And she's like, but but that's what a racist would say. It's like, yeah. oh no, oh god, <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah. I can't. I it's it's the uh, heads I win, tails you lose. Like you can't, <laughs> you yeah. you literally can't win. And I'm like, oh holy shit, I'm just gonna shut my mouth because the the easiest way through this is is around. Uh, if I try to plow through this and and but the heads with this person, this is going to take 10 times longer and it's going to get so much, so many people so much more frustrated. Like, right. And yeah, you also, you, you also start veering off the actual, when the, the conversation or the debate or whatever sort of starts to devolve, you start to really lose sight of the dry land of the original arguments there or whatever, like was the actual like topic of discussion, whether, it, whether it's racism or something like there, there's a lot of really like, and I, I, you said Kafka, and I just always think of his quote where he said, "Evil is whatever distracts." Right? Um, 
And like a lot of this stuff ends up just being like a smokescreen to distract from like the, the actual issues that should be like discussed and the things that should be flushed out and hammered out and like really like gone at. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of the stuff ends up being kind of just like sideshow theatrics that really like take like, the the William F. Buckley Chomsky debates. I mean, those were just so substantive. There was just so much. Um, there was a lot of style and panache and flash there and stuff, but like the ideas were really what like took actual center stage. No, I mean the decorum in which they handled themselves and the, like the sort of mutual respect, even though they couldn't disagree with each other more. And maybe they had this latent hatred for each other, and certainly never came across because the ideas were still centered. They're like the, there were no really dis distractions or sideshows being like hurled at any of it. Which I think a lot of what's happening now is that. All of these things on the periphery are now sort of being like thrown in and shot around and just sort of torpedoing the original project, you know? It, precisely. And I think that the word you use that exactly sums up the, the manner and way people used to debate is decorum. There used yeah. to be a certain amount of self-restraint and there was a certain amount of like no ad hominem type shit. You were not attacking people's character. You Wait, were didn't Buckley attack... Gore Vidal. There's oh. like a whole documentary oh, yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Buckley Buckley was not with certainly not without his his foibles and his oh. his silly um yeah his sort of oh, he would get well to bring up theatrics. I mean he was a master of that and he also got you know uber dramatic and, and way too confrontational. I think with with Vidal yeah it was about his homosexuality I think or something yeah. right yeah. Well guys I want to. I could easily do this for another two hours. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how I got us off. I, I really want to, but I, I want to appease the audience and get and myself <laughs> and get into a little bit of Caspian history too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Philip, I'm interested in your musical history. Like, trace your trajectory for us. I was a alt kid who became a brief new metal kid, and then straight into hardcore, and then I had my post rock renaissance in like 2006 when Mogwai released uh, Mr. Beast. So give us your trajectory. Yeah, wow. Um, dang. So like I said, I, I grew up religious. So my early, like my, uh, I would say, you know, birth to 13 or 14 was a lot of Christian music. Okay. Yes. Um, some of which was pretty good. Like Petra is a fucking badass band. I love that band. <laughs> They're great. Bob Hartman was a great songwriter. I did a lot of that. Now, all that to say, I mean, my parents weren't like the burn the records and the fire type people, like secular albums. Like we could listen to whatever we wanted. Um, so yeah, it was around 13, it was around 14 or 15 that I got into Led Zeppelin. That was sort of the big bang for me. Um, yeah. and that's why I picked up a guitar, did that for a while, uh, a long while still to this day. Then somewhere around, I don't know, maybe 18 or 19 years old, I got really into Brit rock. I got like really into Oasis and the Verve and Blur and Suede and Pulp and bands like that. Uh, that took me over for a really long time. Um, I had a huge, huge Pearl Jam phase and I mean like not like 10 and verses were records that were around when I was in junior high and stuff. And I liked it, but it never really, I don't know, it never really like got me by the balls. But when they put out that record, Vitology, in 1995, something about that record and No Code, um, I, they lost a lot of fans when they put those out, I guess. But to me, 
those were like for a long while those were like the fucking bible to me um there was just something about those records lyrically and the way they structured it musically and um those those were huge huge albums for me so then i i did that for a long time but yeah it wasn't until 2002 that i really uh came online with post rock and it's a wild i mean it was it was such a <laughs> it's a strange total accident that that music kind of grabbed me um it's a super long story and i would i really wish i could find a way to whittle it down um but it's it's really i just can't do it um but that yeah it was uh, well i'll try right now so yeah, yeah. please um you guys remember uh, did you guys have uh, record stores growing up that like you especially liked going to that was just your oh, spot yes. yeah, yeah. My, mine was newbury comics i don't know if they had those where y'all were what 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 were y'all's yeah uh, there was positively records in ben salem rock and roll plus yeah. in, and corrupted image in downtown philly repo records newbury comics is amazing i was there once on a tour oh cool yeah right on yeah newbury comics was that was ground zero for me that's where i would buy my clothes my albums um my sunglasses like belts you fucking name it um yeah and one night in February 2002, I was just, you know, really gnarly, uh, gross, gray, New England winter night. Sun went down at five o'clock. I was bored as hell. Um, just graduated college. It was like a Tuesday night or something. I was like, I don't know what to do tonight, man. So I, I went over to Newbury Comics and um, I was like, I'm going to go to the third aisle. I'm going to walk 13 paces, put my right hand out pick up a CD, go to the counter, buy it, smoke this entire joint that I have and listen to whatever <laughs> album I bought, right? Wow. Yeah. Cuz I was I mean I was bored but I was also, you know, a very adventurous person <laughs> and uh clearly. So I I went to Newbury Comics, walked 13 paces, put my right hand out, picked up a record, put it on the counter, it's like 9 bucks, got in my car. And I remember it didn't have a, a jewel case. There was just like a cardboard uh, CD sleeve. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like I'd seen a few of those, but they weren't really, you know, all that ubiquitous. It was just like, okay, this is cool. feels like a record. Um, and there was no band name on the cover. It was just a, a, a photo, an image of a, a bomb dropping over a field. And I was like, well, that's a fucking heavy album cover. Like, what's up? So I smoked half of the hand cannon <laughs> joint that I had rolled. And um, made my way to the beach, which is, you know, right down the street from where I was living. And I put this record on and uh, the first like five minutes of the of the first track were just these really mournful. I'll, I'll get to what it was like. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to create tension. Obviously. Oh, please. Yeah, I guess I'm going. doing the long version, but that's it's all right with you. This guys, is so, like yeah. a pornography for post rock fans. <laughs> so I'm feeling it. This is this is pure Caspian, though. This is the build up to the crescendo. This is, yeah. this is where we're going. Exactly. Um, and I, I pulled up into the it was kind of like sleeting, like that kind of frozen rain, like shit you get around New England in February, which is just awful. Um, and I got to the the circle where the uh, where the beach was, and this is where I would go to just listen to records. And it was an, an ugly night, but I was sitting there in my car, um, put it in park. You know, I had it in park for ten minutes, and you know, the first five minutes of this song was just so mournful and so sad. But it was mostly strings. There was some 
distant guitars in the background or what I thought were guitars. Um, and I was like, okay, like I got a, I got some weird neoclassical record. Like, this is cool. Like I love classical music. I was kind of hoping I'd get like a rock album. That would be, yeah. you know, cause I'm a rock guy, but whatever. Like I, I'm going to listen to the whole record and I'm high as shit and I'm going to do this. And yeah, this is really sad. Like what's going on. And there was that nine thing in the back of me that was like, man, like, I wish this was a rock record, but it's, it's all good, dude. And, but it was really sad. Anyway, you know, this song like sonically just started building and building with just more layers and more strings and more guitars. And I was like, what the fuck? And out of nowhere, like bass and drums just come slamming in. And I, like my head went through the ceiling of the car. I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like this is, this is a rock record. Like what the fuck is this? And I was, I was just, I mean, I was, it was like everything I'd ever wanted to hear from every style of music I'd ever loved. And like, it was, it was Godspeed, Black Emperor's Yankee UXO. Um, I thought that's who you were going to yeah. say. Yes. I listened to the whole record and like, I barely moved. I felt paralyzed. Um, and the, the record's like 75 minutes long or whatever, but I listened to the entire thing with barely blinking. And, wow. um, it's like, okay, like, and I started, you know, looking at the album liner notes and stuff, and I was like, okay, like, uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and then, like, the album artwork for that, which I, had, I, of course, didn't know anything about them, and I was like, what the fuck is this? I mean, there's, like, a diagram connecting, like, the new, like, the military-industrial complex to, like, Sony Music or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what is going on? And in the bottom right was, of course, the, the Constellation Records emblem, um, their logo. So I went back to Newbury Comics the next day and I think, well, the night before I had gone back and searched like what the fuck Constellation Records was and I wrote down like on a pad of paper, like all the bands I saw from like Do Make Say Think, um, you know, Godspeed, Silver Mount Zion, um, like all those bands and wrote down a list and I went back to Newbury comics and I bought like $250 of constellation records <laughs> stuff. I binged like, I'm, I'm talking now like five days in, like I hadn't gone to work. I hadn't talked to my girlfriend. I was in a band at the time. Like I didn't show up to band practice. Wow. I was just completely taken over by all of the bands on this label. I mean, it was, it was truly like a Eureka moment for me. And yeah, I mean, Exhaust, Fly Pan Am. I mean, all those bands were just, I'd never heard anything like it before, you know, not even, yeah. not even fucking close, not even in the ballpark. Like I was familiar with Atmospherics and I had a delay pedal and that was all well and good and stuff. But like turning it into this sort of like orchestral fuck fest was like unlike anything <laughs> I'd ever, I mean, even conceived before. So yeah, that was like, that was five or six days of me just driving around, chain smoking, listening to all these records at full blast. <laughs> and, like, and that's incredible. I had a similar experience. Yeah. Like Mogwai was playing, they were touring Mr. Beast, and I never even heard them. But something inside me said, buy a ticket to this, buy a ticket to this and go to this. Wow. And I, I bought the ticket, and then I listened to Rock Action. And I had a similar experience to what you're saying. And nice. I'm like, I didn't know music like this existed. And I've never connected more deeply to something. Yeah, and then it. I got into Mr. Beast. And then I got online and I was like, I need to know every band that sounds like this. <laughs> Please tell me right now. Brilliant. And 
Someone recommended, are you ready for this? Yeah. Caspian. Oh, man. You are the conductor. Holy shit. I, and that is... I, I downloaded it. Sorry, Phil. This was a while ago. Uh, I downloaded it, and I listened to it, and I was just instantly grabbed by it. Now, That's I have awesome. to say, what a strong debut. And the trilogy, and folks, if you don't know, the trilogy is uh, the first three tracks on... Uh, you are the conductor, Cuvo, further up and further in. Mm. That's the best one, two, three punch in post rock, as far as I'm concerned. Damn, man. And shit, like, how long, how long was Caspian a band before that first release came out? I'm interested in like we started the early days. Well, so to close the loop on, because I'll uh, yeah, I'll try to merge these here. Um, yes. To close the loop on, I, so I showed all those records to everyone in my band prior to Caspian, and they were kind of like. Uh, this is cool. Like I could paint to it, and I was like, I, I was like, I quit. <laughs> and then I met Cal, um, who I had known for a while, but we'd never played music together. And he and I started jamming and just messing around, and you know, playing guitar and hatching wild plans. And I want to say mid two thousand three or early two thousand three. So. Yeah, that was early 2002 that I heard Godspeed, and then I went on this wild goose chase for a year, and then, you know, it landed with Cal and I sort of messing around. Then around the summer of 2003, he introduced me to Chris and Joe, our bass player and drummer, and um, we just, we we all wanted to be in bands, but we didn't, I don't know, like, we were all sort of collectively getting ensconced with this kind of music at the same time so it was this whole new like technicolor world to us all happening in conjunction like together and we were just we had a practice space and we would just get together and just jam for hours and hours and hours and like drink shitty beer and like laugh and (laughs) high five and we did we started doing that really intently in like late 2003 and then summer of 2004, we played a show. Uh, we didn't have a band name or anything, and we wanted to get a singer, but we didn't have one at the time, and we just did the show anyway, and, and everyone was like, fuck that. Like, just you don't need a singer. Just keep doing this. And we were like, "Wow, okay. So we kept doing that. And then by the end of 2004, we found a band name, and early 2005, we were like, oh, let's play some more gigs. And we started playing more gigs, and I think... Uh, yeah, like February 2005, we went down to New York City and was like, oh my God, like you can play outside of Massachusetts. This is sick. Like, this is awesome. And we did that. And then I think I, I think I remember getting back from that New York City trip around March or April. And uh, that's when we recorded You're the Conductor, um, was down in Boston um, at New Alliance East. And uh, we wanted it to be a full length, like our first record, but... We also had this sort of, you know, conceptual idea for it, like every song bleeding into the other and stuff. And yes, it came out in, uh, I think it was, yeah, November 2005. Um, and by that point, like we already had most of the four trees written because we were just playing all the time. I mean, that's all we did. Like we just, we were at that rehearsal space, um, just ba- banging out ideas and like, you know, our friends would come through and. It was, yeah, it was it was really fertile fertile creative time for all four of us and we definitely made the most of it you know like yeah we wrote a lot of material during those days and that yeah, was fun it was fun man it was, it was really exciting really exciting time for just creativity and and camaraderie and brotherhood and and all that you know 
That's incredible. Yeah, I actually caught you. I think it was your first tour when you were selling the the tour EP. It had a oh, song damn. that I think ended up on Four Trees. Yeah, we had Crawl Space on there. Yeah, and I took the train up. It was like a weeknight, and I took off of work the next day. So I took the train up from Philly, mm -hmm. and I caught you guys at pianos. Oh, fuck yeah, and, dude. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember like meeting you guys and talking to everybody and hanging out with like Chris and the rest of the band and just sitting around drinking, and it was, oh, man. It was awesome. That's great. I love it. Yeah, pianos, we basically had a residency there. I mean, we, we did CBGBs that first time um in early 2005 but yeah pianos threw us a bone sometime around 2006 and i mean we played there i feel like jesus like once every couple months and right for four years there's three or four years i mean that was just our spot yeah i've seen you more than once there yeah there was just i mean yeah pianos new york that's that's really that and tt the bears in boston is where we just cut our chops i mean that's where we would be, always be trying out new stuff and just like smuggling in new songs that no one knew about. And like, we were really lucky too, because man, I mean, especially for bands starting out now, it's, it's gotta be fucking tough because we were right out of college. So we still had all our college friends, right. Who wanted to party and hang out and listen to rock music and like, you know, um, you know, hang out with their friends, whatever. And our band was kind of a conduit to that. So I mean, mm -hmm. people liked our music and stuff, and we had a lot of support from our local community. But it was also like a, just a really good time for us to be doing that. And yeah, a lot of bands now, it's like, and I'm not yeah, not even gonna go back into the earlier discussion that we were having about <laughs> social media and stuff, and just growing, you know, looking inward all the time. But it was a really open time. And Jesus, this was only like 14 years ago, so like. Yeah. Um a, lo a lot of people have difficulty like even just getting out now and doing things socially and that was not an issue for us when we were starting and ultimately it, it was really galvanizing, you know. It was really something that like put some lead in our pencil and really gave us a lot of confidence when we were kicking this whole thing off to just sort of do it the best we could and yeah, to really double down on being a live band and then gravitate into a studio band and stuff like that. So, that's awesome you're at those piano shows, man. Those were just some of my favorite memories um, from this band will always be at that spot because it just felt like home, and that was great. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I loved it. And there's another pianos tie-in I'll get, I'll get to at the end. Nice. But, um, yeah, so over the years, you've played with a lot of big acts, you know, him, Under Oath, a lot of non-post-rock bands. How receptive are those crowds and do you ever get jokers being like oh where's the lyrics you know anything like that you know not really we i think at first we were uh, like anyone else would be we were a little hesitant uh, to play with bands like that because we thought we'd get like tomatoes and cabbage thrown at us or whatever like <laughs> yeah silly thing but no um a lot of the bands that like under the under oaths and the hymns like you know they all have really good they have a diverse palette of musical interests. So mm -hmm. it, it always kind of amazed me that, you know, fans would show up to shows like that and expect the band to just like every single band that sounded like them. And it was just like, yo, like there's, there were a lot, there was a lot going on contributing to what made that band them. And it came from just like a whole plethora of different sounds. And we were one of those. And I think one of the great things about, uh, one little i don't know sign of success or whatever and i hate to use that term because it's just, it's so overwrought but like 
I think if you're if you're in a, if you're a band that's got to a position of prominence, ideally, like you want your fans to trust you. You know, you want your fans to just sort of like you know i i i don't know what a instrumental post rock band is doing like opening for you guys but i trust you and like i love your music and i love your band and you guys are a fucking lifestyle so what's up and then that's kind of the band we were they they would trust the headliner and then we'd get up and do our best and ideally it would be like this really you know like diverse evening of music for the person in the crowd where they wouldn't just hear like four carbon copies of the headliner and then the headliner doing it best like yeah there was a lot of really we we were met with a lot of warmth on those tours and sold a lot of records and made a lot of friends and it, yeah it was awesome that's great and it it's almost like destiny because i mean caspian puts on a great live show i'm i'm telling you that philip and you know, your first songs, your first three songs are like a string of some of the best songs ever created, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's just like, it, people are telling you right away, you don't even need a singer. And that's rare to have that combination of things, to have such a strong debut, to uh, not need a singer, to have such strong live performance. Because, I, I mean, I hear post-rock bands all the time, you know what I mean? And a lot of it sounds the same. And look, I love the genre and I like that. Like, I know, I like to know what I'm getting into, but something, I don't know, there's just something about that Caspian de debut that sets it apart, and I can't quite put words on it. Well, I mean, the songs were shorter and more contained, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, we definitely, from the post-rock purists at the time, I remember a lot of people that shat on it were the people that were like, the songs aren't long enough, and they're not patient enough, and we were like... Yeah, like they're not. We want to be more patient. <laughs> like, you know, we want to we want to sort of relax and whatever, but we were just really kind of jumpy, impulsive people and the songs were reflective of that, you know. But yeah, I I don't know, man. I, again, we weren't we we had this moment, this like big bang eureka moment with post-rock music, but all the guys, you know, self-included, we, we were all into so many different kinds of music. And, and the thing that we loved about post-rock, quote-unquote, was that it just felt like a free um, space to do whatever you wanted to do, you know? Like, there were just really, it didn't, back then, it really didn't feel like there were any rules. There was no dress code. There was no, like, oh, you wear a black hoodie and black vans and whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there was yeah. none of that. There was no like, well, what's your favorite Godspeed record? Or like, how many like Godspeed tattoos do you have? Or like, you know, Mogwai sucked after Mr. Beast. Or there was just like none of that. Like, it was right. just like people could do whatever they wanted. Like, Sigur Ross, it was like, oh, they want to sing in Icelandic and play with a bow? Sick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, um, there was no like purity test. There was no just, purity test. And there test, still yeah. isn't, as far as I know. It still kind of just is what it is. Yeah. I, I, I think, I th yeah, I think so. I, again, I, I haven't, I'm kind of, I don't really know. I follow a post-rock appreciation society thing on Facebook just to like get my IV drip of like what's going on. Because, yeah. Like I don't really, I don't really know. But like I won't go to a post-rock show and like get judged by somebody because I have the wrong explosions in the sky shirt on. You know what Good. I mean? It's not like that, the awesome. hardcore scene. That That is fucking great to hear. That honestly makes, <laughs> that makes me really happy. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Love it. So uh, in 2013, tragically, uh, the band suffered the loss of your bass player, Chris. And it, it seemed 
it seemed really sudden. So, you know, I met him, I remember specifically talking to him at that piano show and just hanging out and, you know, he seemed like a really nice guy and I have fond memories of, of him in that show. And I mean, how, how do you and the band cope together with, with such a big loss? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was, I mean, it was totally devastating. Um, and again, not just for the band, but that scene that I alluded to earlier of like the people who, you know, were just post-college and we, we were kind of like a, more than just a band, it was a big family. Yeah. And so it was, it, it was, it had a really wide impact of, I guess, uh, devastation for a lot of people. And you know, the, a lot of our band has always been based around our, our friendships and our, our camaraderie and our, our brotherhood and, and the sense of family. Um, and that's that's still intact, even though it's a bit of a different cast and the cast is sort of subtly always changing. Our response really was not just to write a record, which we knew we had to do, and that's that's what produced Dustin Disquiet, but we knew that through the process of doing a record of writing an album together that that would sort of reinforce the bond that we all had uh, uh, amongst us as, as friends and, and quote unquote family, which was something that we, we all really needed after that. We needed that to be reinforced and the best way that we knew and we continue to know how to do that is to just play music together. And, you know, the playing music together is, it comes natural and we love doing it and, one of the beautiful things about just the act of creating together is that it's a conduit to so many other things. Like if you're going to, if you're going to choose to write a record together, you're going to have to spend a lot of time together. And that time spent together isn't just writing music and like, you know, being uber dramatic and whatever. It's like hanging out and like drinking some beers and like watching movies together and like whatever it may be, it's always a conduit to just like spending quality time with each other as friends. And yeah. So I think after Chris passing away, we, you know, we knew we had to respond to that artistically, but we knew that the artistic response to that was something that was also going to produce, you know, time that we got to spend with each other. And so it it, it kind of worked in, in both ways. And I think we all we all knew that going into that process, that it, it wasn't just about writing a record and, you know, going bananas over that. It, it was about, you know, intentionally spending time with each other. Um, and, and I think we, we accomplished that, you know, like the record could have been a piece of total shit, but we wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't have cared, you know, because it facilitated, uh, it facilitated us being able to just, you know, spend as much time as we could with each other. And, and I think that was ultimately the best byproduct of that, that we could get, you know? Yeah. And it must've been so emotional because I get so emotional listening to so much of your music for so many reasons, but for you guys to be writing that and performing that and putting your emotions on display every night playing that, it must have been just crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. we knew that it was going to be really demanding emotionally, and we, yeah, that, that was not something that we were going to balk at. That wasn't something that, the situation just felt like it, it, it had no choice but to produce something that, you know, we weren't afraid of or that, yeah, it, it was it was something like I said it, it was really galvanizing and it was mm-hmm. nothing that 
nothing that any of us were were scared of. Like we we had to really enter that. Um, we just had to we had to jump into that head first and just be prepared for anything. You know, I guess. Right. Yeah. And you know, Caspian is now Grammy nominated. So when you when you meet people, do you say hello? I'm Grammy nominated artist Philip Jameson because that's that's what I would do to anyone that I spoke to if that happened to me. That was the first thing I asked our management when we saw that. I was like, well, can we? Because obviously, the, I mean, the Grammy it's fucking awesome. And Jordan, <laughs> the the guy or our friend who did the. Uh, packaging it's well deserved i mean he's a g yes but you know even though it has nothing to do with the music i i asked our management i was like can we still can we say that we're grammy nominated because it looks great on a resume <laughs> and they were like oh hell yes you can <laughs> and i was like yeah <laughs> tight so yeah i mean who, who knows like it's great I, I hope that he wins uh he is jordan is a absolute legend and it's tough because we have all these sprawling wild conceptual ideas for our records and it's really difficult for us to because we want you don't want to be too on the nose uh aesthetically with right. whatever the concept is but you also don't want to be like just super uh you know you don't want to be conceited and just like make it this just total like you know art come piece of shit thing where it's just <laughs> yeah. like you know, you 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 don't want it to be pretentious in that way. But and and Jordan really is really good at sort of balancing that and fleshing out the conceptual ideas. Great. So yeah, um, I would never ever introduce myself to anyone as Grammy nominated. <laughs> well, it's fun to imagine at least. <laughs> yes, my parents loved it. I knew they would. Yeah, on circles, another home run for the band. Now, again, in my opinion, Caspian does not have a bad release. No. And, you know, you never stray too far from the mark, and you don't keep it too in the same ballpark so that it gets boring. There's always the perfect balance. And on Circles, another home run. I love when you guys experiment with vocals. Those are some of my favorite songs. You know, you were geared up to go on some big tours. I was going to go to the gig in New York City, and you were going to have Kyle Kyle Durfee come on to hopefully do nostalgist and i was all ready to watch that and cry and uh of course the world happened Mm. and tours are canceled uh indefinitely so was there a lot of disappointment like putting out this incredible record and then you got to sit on it for a while oh god yeah i mean it was uh, it was devastating man like we do this we've slowly gravitated towards really enjoying recording and putting out records but when this all started the whole point was all right like yeah sure we'll record but like we just want to be on stage you know what i mean like we just want to be on tour we want to play live like playing live is why we do this and we've slowly come around to like i mean loving especially for on circles i mean the recording experience for that was, I mean, the best month of my life. I, I literally like there's just everything about that was just experimenting with stuff and someone like Will at the helm and everyone just going all in on that. It was incredible, but it, it's always impossible. I mean, we're never gonna the live the live component of this is is still no matter what, no matter how much fun we have in the studio, no matter how proud of a record we are. 
I mean, we want to be on stage. Like we want to be playing in front of people and we want to be sharing four walls and a ceiling with whoever decides to show up. And that's the end of the rainbow for us. So yeah, that getting snatched away, that was, that was tough. I mean, yeah, it was just, it, it's weird because it was just more of a shock. And I think, you know, anyone who had their sort of shit ripped away by this, the shock didn't just disappear with the reality of like, okay, we're going to lock down here and no one can do anything. I mean, the shock like sort of, it, it percolated for a while. And then by the time it finally died off and was finally burnt away, you were just left with this like, I don't know, man, like this like bummer of bummers. And that was like, it just compounded it or something. And like, um, yeah, definitely. I know it, it was tough, but you know, we, we all kept, we all kept talking to each other and, you know, I had like our weekly calls with, you know, where we would just like keep trying to, the whole goal for this year has just been to put like logs onto the fire so that the fire stays warm. And we're really lucky just because we had a lot of good content in the pipeline. Like we had this documentary, which is like the first real documentary we've ever put out, which we fucking love. Mm -hmm. We had this whole, you know, Cabot, uh, Live at the Cabot recording that Audio Tree did with the uh, symphony. And I mean, we had a lot of good stuff to sort of parse out and, and keep the fire burning. So that definitely kept us from going nuts and... Yeah, we came to peace with it after a while and, you know, always looking to the future. You know, we had like a couple tours rebooked. Like we had all those shows. We had the New York show and the whole East Coast thing like rebooked for, I think, last fall and then mm-hmm. had to pull the plug on that again. And it was just like, you just live and learn through a lot of it. And um, we've got shit planned for this year, but, you know, we're we're duly chastened now. <laughs> it's like we don't expect... We don't expect anything. You, you know, it's like, hope oh, for the best, expect the worst. So, like, Exactly. We talk yeah. to a lot of bands, and you just got to keep rebooking it and rebooking it until eventually it can happen. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know. We feel better about things maybe coming together the second half of this year. Uh, I mean, who knows? But it, it seems yeah. like things are like looking more promising if they can get these fucking vaccine rollouts together or whatever. Like, I hope so. I don't even bother asking bands about like live shows anymore. I like in the beginning, I was like, "Hey, so are we going to do a reunion or maybe some live shows?" Now I just don't even ask anymore because who knows when the hell that's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to pull your chips in anything, and it's tough. But we 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 have this tour scheduled in Europe next October with or this October with Coltaloon we hope that happens we have two shows in boston scheduled for september 30th and october 1st at an amazing venue here that we hope happen we'll see if they don't we're not going to be devastated because you know everyone's used to it at this point but you got to keep planning stuff and yeah we'll we'll see what happens it's just it's really an it's an unprecedented time right (laughs) (laughs) it really is who knew that the end of live music was a possibility. And, you know, there's a lot of in-person functions that I'm a part of. I had no idea that all of that just ending was a possibility. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. The way you just said that was like a knife, like slicing through the gut. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. I never, could never have like, yeah, visualized a scenario that would just, yeah, totally kill it like that. But that's exactly where we're at, isn't it? Yeah. 
crazy shit, I mean, man. We're we're gonna we're gonna hope that the vaccines work and that things get back to normal and that I can come and see you and the band once again. And speaking of the band, Caspian has their own day in Beverly, <laughs> Massachusetts, October eighteenth. So when you meet people, do you introduce yourself as Philip Jameson, <laughs> Grammy-nominated artist who has his own day in Beverly, Massachusetts? <laughs> That's good, man. No, it's great. There's some. There's because we all laughed about this, but we have like the. Uh, <laughs> Like the town decree, like I have it on my wall in, in the bathroom of my apartment framed. Oh, <laughs> I love that. And on the decree, it very clearly says, you know, I hereby, <laughs> I hereby decree Saturday, October 18th as Caspian Day, right? I love that. But <laughs> it doesn't say a year. So <laughs> you can only infer that every time it is saturday october the 18th it's caspian day so it could like this year it was on a wednesday and that sure as shit was not caspian day because it wasn't saturday <laughs> october 18th you should just head into beverly and be like go up to like baskin robbins and be like all right it's time for my free ice cream Why? <laughs> it's, my, it's my fucking day have you not seen the decree you should just carry it get yeah, it carry laminated. it with you. <laughs> yeah. get it laminated make a lanyard out of it and put it on your around your neck and just it's, walk around exactly a lane i was gonna say tattoo but yeah, a lanyard is just way better with like a gold chain or something. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because when we got that, our guitarist Cal immediately went and made a Facebook event page for Caspian Day on Saturday, October 18th, 2022, which is the next time. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great, man. Well, we're winding down here. So uh, we're going to get to the part of the interview where we talk about how great you and the band are. So, uh, <laughs> All right. yeah. so get ready. You know, the band's music has been such an important part of so much of my life for more than a decade now, you know, discovering your debut, going up to New York to see you guys on that first tour, hanging out. You know, I remember detoxing and trying to get off drugs and listening to Gone and Bloom and Bow over and over again. And that song, carried me through some bad times. I remember when you played St. Vitus a couple years ago, I was walking into the show and I get a phone call and I heard that tragically my friend died of an overdose. And this guy's father was a part owner of pianos. Mm. So there was like a weird tie-in and then like watching the music just made me really emotional, really emotional thinking of my friend. And I mean... The band's music has just been a big part of my life for a long time, so I just want to say thank you to you and the band for creating so much excellent music. And like I said, you know, you don't have a bad album in the mix, and you never stray too far from the mark, and you keep it fresh, and you you just deliver every time, and I want to say thanks. Hey, I mean, yeah, that that's why, you know... Not even at the risk of sounding cliche. I mean, that's why we do what we do, man. Like right there. And that's the truth. And anytime that just thanks, you know, I appreciate yeah. that. Like, especially, especially right now when, you know, we can't do what we love doing, that it goes even that much longer. And uh, really appreciate it, man. I'm just glad that, I don't know, thanks for keeping an open ear. And, yeah, well, hopefully we'll be doing this for a while, man. So, I hope so. And I want to give Tommy 
an opportunity to uh, butter you up as well because, you know, your band's important to us. Yeah, my turn to gush. All right, so um, one of the things that consistently I think about when um, I talk to people about music is, you know, music is cathartic, but there's also a portion of music that is 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 transient. It brings you somewhere else. Um, and I think... Uh, my wife was really, really sick when she had the twins. She was in intensive care for almost a month. Um, I was at home by myself um, with two eight-day-old babies. <laughs> I had never taken care of a baby in my entire life. And I was by myself. And I remember just thinking, I need something. And uh, your music, especially during that time, and during a time of, you know, in the last, you know, three or four years where I, I really slowed down um, with my drinking, where I was like, I need I need something that gets me to that same place. And uh, for some reason, I, I was in the car and I, I always used to listen to like pretty heavy music in the morning to kind of get me amped up to get, ex- you know, get excited about going to work and and getting in the classroom and like kind of like kids feed off that energy. So I was always like, look, get, get energized before you came in. And for some reason, uh, about five minutes out from my commute, I was like, you know what? I really want to listen to Caspian. So I put you guys on and, uh, I put on sad heart of mine. And for some reason, uh, I don't know why, but it, it's that song that regardless of how many times I listen to it still gives me goosebumps. The, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I remember that ultimate feeling, and this is it, it, whether, you know, whether I like it or not, it, it takes me back to that moment of like pure helplessness, whether it was being alone with the twins and not knowing that, what to do or dealing with my issues with, you know, uh, quelling my drinking. And it was really like, it was a song that was able to kind of put me in a place where there was clarity. And that to me is unbelievable that, you know, a group of people can make something that just transforms and, and transports me. And I, I, I just, I truly appreciate what you do. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I, I, I can't believe when we were looking at it, I was like, I, you know, the time's running at the top and I thought we spent, right? we spent 49 minutes talking about, Corn, Carl Young, <laughs> William F. Buckley, and in my head I'm going, you know, you idolize this person that's on the other side, and you're sitting there, <laughs> you're you're doing a fake New England accent for some reason, like you know, you're like, and it, it really is just it. The important thing I want to get across to you is just that you, your music has really impacted my life in so many positive ways, and I, and I truly appreciate everything that you've done for us. So thank you so much, Philip. I, you guys, both of you express yourselves so well, and I mean, if we express what we are trying to do musically half as well, then it feels like a success. So, I mean, yeah, guys, that's this is why we do what we do, like straight up, all all the way, all day long, forever. Um, thank you. I mean, from on behalf of everybody, literally, like this is why we 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 put all this work into it, man. It's, it's for those reasons, like alone. So I really appreciate it guys.
There you have it, folks. Philip Jameson. Now, I've been working on getting him on the show for a little while. And shit, that was incredible. Like I was saying to him, Caspian has been such an important band in my life, and I know yours too, Tommy. I was really nervous going into it, and it was awesome. Like, we were talking, and I always glance over at the time to see how we're doing, and we were at like 40 minutes, and we hadn't even gotten into any Caspian stuff yet. And I was like, this is great. Like, one, the whole first part of this conversation is incredibly engaging, and two, I can just do like the best questions to capture all the the best Caspian stuff and yeah, it was it was fluid, it was flowing, it was engaging, it was awesome. I, I think this is one of those episodes that uh I don't normally go back and listen to a lot of the episodes. This is one of the ones I'll go back and listen to. A hundred percent. Oh yeah. Yeah. I listen to it. I pretty much just listen to it when I'm editing it. You know, like actually the episodes I listen to, sometimes I go back and listen to the whole things are the ones with us. Cause I'm self-absorbed like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, like, yeah. uh, like I went back and listened to the whole thing with me talking about the exam like three times because I, I'm like still reeling from the high of getting the exam. Like I log in and look at the certificate and I listen to the whole story and I was like happy. I'm like, I can't believe, I still can't believe that it happened. I actually, so when I took my math exam, I did the yeah. same thing you did, but I fi- I got sick of logging into the same place. Yeah. So I, I finally just took a screenshot of it. And <laughs> the whole time I was at Disney World, you know, like I'm taking pictures with my kids and, you know, we're, you know, having dinner and whatever, and like hanging out, watching fireworks and whatnot. I would ever so slightly just go grab my phone and glance at it and be like, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You too. Yeah, because you, you invest all that time and energy and effort into something and then it pays off. It's... It's a rare thing. Yeah, mine was like it was like 13 14 months of just just grind and yeah. you know keep them like the the girls at the time were four and you know run like trying to maintain a household do good you know do well at my job and um got my math certification. I wasn't aware of this. Once I signed up for the classes, I was then eligible to be able to teach the subject. And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. That's great." And then I got my room assignment and I was like, that's the math room. Am I teaching math this year? I don't know how to do the math. Yet. <laughs> like, it was uh, very surprising to me because like it, it just came down to like, look, this is a ton of effort that I'm already putting in. And now I have to teach a new subject. So I, I can totally put myself in your shoes, like where you're, you're trying to multitask so many things and, but your primary focus has to be this singular thing. It's scary and it's daunting. And when you finally are successful with that, there's a certain amount of, um, it it really just builds you up in terms of like, you feel like, look, I worked hard towards something and I accomplished it. So my thing was I took that same energy and I was like, okay, so what's next? Here's the problem. I did nothing after that. I did that like I'm going to bask in my, you know, amazingness for two or so weeks while I, you know, I was on in, in Disney and then down the shore. And then I came home and I'm like, okay, so what's next? What am I going to put my energy into? And it's like, no, I'm going to chill the fuck out. I'm yeah. going to take a step back and enjoy life. That constant fixation on something, it it's not healthy. 
and your your brain, at least for me, it, I felt like my brain was telling me to slow down because I would try to get into something new, like read a new book or you know go back to playing guitar or write a song or and I, my I just we're like no I don't feel like it. I did the same thing. I was like, I'm learning this song on piano. I'm starting this game. I did start the game, by the way. More on that later. Uh, I'm going to learn Spanish. And then today I was looking up other certifications. And I'm like, should I get this one? Should I get that one? And I was like, yo, I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's that, like you said, it's like that manicness that we are both completely susceptible to it. Like where you have that exhilaration of success. And then you're like, okay. Now I need to keep it going. It was like, you know, I had five drinks at the first bar. Okay, where are we going next? Like, yeah, let's, let's, yeah. Keep, let's keep this buzz going because I don't want to lose this feeling. <laughs> yeah. Like my friend made fun of me a long time ago. He's like, you go out, you go to like six different bars. He's like, why don't you just stay at one and drink? And I was like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I got specific places to go to for specific things. I mean, uh, come on. Yeah. Let's talk more about Philip, too. Philip Jameson, very well-spoken, thought-out, awesome person. That was such a great conversation. And as we're talking, I'm, like, thinking about all the Caspian records I'm going to listen to again and, like, all my favorite songs. It was, that was a home run. You know, I actually wanted to bring this up, and I never, I forgot about it. I wanted to talk to them about, like, licensing their music. Have, Have you ever heard their music in a commercial? No, that's something I wanted to ask too. Like, uh, like, would they be in a commercial or like, would they do a soundtrack film? Because you you brought up the question about um, the cinematics part of it. Yes, yeah. and I I I can hear their songs and envision like a whole movie. There's um, uh, an ad I get on Instagram fairly often um, for Guinness. I think it is. Yeah, and um, the soundtrack that they use in the background—it's like a old clip from like Joe Montana when he played at Notre Dame. Yeah, and uh, I forget what they use. Maybe it's explosions in the sky. Maybe it's God as an astronaut. But it's like I was so proud of myself because somebody asked the question. They're like, "What song is this?" And I was like, "I fucking know." <laughs> and I, I, for some reason, I can't remember what it was. <laughs> That's funny that he has such a epic entrance to a post rock story as well. Yeah. Oh, like that whole thing of like I, when he started saying like it was like a a plane dropping a bomb. I'm like, that's Godspeed. Because like, I yeah, could- I just knew it. I honestly, I haven't even listened to a lot of Godspeed, and I didn't even really like them that one time we saw them. But I just knew it was them for some reason. I love them so much when I was younger. Yeah. I've actually they I have. Um, kind of lost my and I, I i'm no longer enamored with them as i once was uh, yeah it's too indulgent for me i need that's one when philip mentioned like you know they were shorter and punchier yes. like those those songs with you are the conductor i remembered that's what attracted me to them because there wasn't like the long build-up and then the crescendo and and they do some of that too but those th- three songs one two three they were like songs you know what I mean? Not like this post-rock, I don't know, self-indulgent thing. There's no there's no uh, four and a half minute ambient intro. Yeah, that, they just get right into it. 
you know, there was a couple times I remember, uh, actually this was fairly recently over the summertime. Uh, somebody made like a, like on YouTube, like a, you know, Godspeed, you black emperor, like kind of best, best of kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I put it on, I think I lasted about 10 minutes before I was like, all right, <laughs> I don't like, I get it. It's some, I, they have one song that I like. It's that song from 28 days later. Yeah. That song is really, really great. The, the album that has the two hands on it with the handcuffs. Yeah. That one. Uh, the opening song for that. That was actually J.D. Foster's wedding song. Really? I remember, yeah, I was sitting I, I was sitting at a table with Liz Cowan. And I remember she took me as her date to – or we, we took each other because we didn't have dates <laughs> to J.D.'s <laughs> wedding. And we, Wait, he got married that young? Oh, yeah. J.D. was 24, 25. Wow. I was definitely living at home. And I remember – it was really funny is when we were leaving, Liz was like, all right, it's time to go. And I was like, oh yeah, there's no booze here. <laughs> He's like, JD doesn't drink. His wife doesn't drink. Like his family's very kind of like, you know, straight laced kind of people. And I was like, oh, there's no, there's literally no alcohol here. So I went home and got shit house by myself or <laughs> maybe I called sprinkles. I don't remember. I called somebody and was like, let's just go drink. <laughs> like I just drank on my porch. That's how every story ends for me from 2000 to 2017 <laughs> i went home and got shit house by myself well it's it was actually funny i was thinking about this the other day was uh i was playing we, we got mario kart wii Ooh. and uh we we're playing it upstairs and i remember i have like vivid memories of me you pat mccormick and doug sitting on that leather couch uh playing the you guys had uh was it gamecube or no you had uh nintendo 64 version of yes. it yes and we just sitting there for hours, just getting fucking hammered, just sitting there drinking and drinking and drinking and just playing Mario Kart. And it was like, my mom would be like, how, how did you have, did you do something fun in the city? Did you guys go out to a, like a, a concert? Do you go to go to the bars? Like, what'd you do? And I was like, oh yeah, we did all that. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I sat on a broken leather couch and fucking played Mario Kart with my friends and did drugs. <laughs> Not a lot has changed, no. minus the uh, the drinking and, and the drug intake. But, yeah. yo, have you ever played The Legend of Zelda 2 for NES? Yes. It's such a hard game, and I've never beaten it, but I started it over the weekend. And if it weren't for... You know how with these emulators you can save, like, yeah. anywhere? Yeah. If, 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 you, if I couldn't do that, there's no way I could finish this game. I remember when I first got that game, I was so confused because remember there's the the overlay map that you yeah. travel from place to place. It's so different from the first one, and we we would rent it every once in a while, but I never got anywhere. Yeah, I, that would, that game is insanely hard. There's also one of the characters that does that uh, kind of like arcing attack with uh, like they're like hatchets or like double sided axes. Yes, and it's, like, it's impossible. Like you can't get past those characters without taking some type of damage. And I remember, you know, like the, there's the part, have you gotten to the part where you get the downward strike now? Like, yes, that to me was like gold. I remember when I first got it, I was like, oh, I have that now. Cause it was actually, I, I don't remember if it was on the cover or if it was in like a Nintendo power article I read. And yeah. I remember like the whole time I first got the game trying to be like, how do you do the downward attack? The yeah, I started it and I was like, wait, you're supposed to be able to do a downward fucking attack. How do you do that? And then I, I read my walkthrough and I was like, oh, you have to get it. What a bummer. It's such a hard game. I have to restart 
over and over and over and over and over again just to get past like one part how did people do this back in the day with no save states i i don't know uh but you know what i i I have seen people doing the like the playthrough things and it's just like it's so crazy and actually you know what's funny uh because we have Wii at my house and we have gotten a bunch of different games. And one of the ones that someone told me to get, and they were like, it's one of the best games on Wii is called, uh, Metroid prime three corruption. Yeah. So I ordered it from eBay the other day. So it's a, everything with shipping is taking forever right now. So it's supposed to be here in like a week and a half. So maybe next week's episode, I'll be able to talk about it. But, um, I, my friend had Metroid Prime, and I remember loving that game. Yeah, it's good. It's a really good game, and I I love the first Metroid, but I think I'm in a very very small minority because most people are like, "Ooh, I hate that game." <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it. I started it, but I never finished it. Whichever one was on Wii, I don't remember. But listen, we're 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 running out of time, so. Give us Apple Podcast reviews. We yeah. like those. We'll read them on the air. Continue to write us. Uh, continue to reach out to us. You're a part of this thing too. Thank you to Philip for being on the show. Thank you to Caspian for writing such great music for so many years. And I don't know. I think that's it. What else you got, Tommy? I don't have anything else. My, I was going to say, do we have any like fan mail or anything we want to read? Is there anything like that? Yeah. Check this out. This is awesome. I posted a map of all the countries we've been heard in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this guy writes, he's like, he's like, I've heard you from Greece, but it's not coming up on the map. This guy, Alkis. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, man, these things aren't like totally accurate, but thanks for listening. And he's like, a huge fan, love the chemistry and the guests you have on the show. Keep it up. Yo, I love when people mention our chemistry, Tommy. And it, you know what's funny is that I always thought about this as like it's just you and I riffing and just talking to each other the same way we normally talk. Yes. And I never thought of it as engaging. I like <laughs> it, it, having fun like talking to you is just talking to you. Like it, yeah. it just it doesn't seem like, you know, I don't know. I, I That just, was my biggest fear with this thing is I was a, I was like what if nobody cares at all? Here's a question for you. Yes. Why me? Why you? Yeah. For the show? Yeah. Because you're you're the person I do this shit with. But why me? Because you never shut up. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. That's dead, deadly accurate. Fuck. Yeah. No, listen, you're the person. We connect the most musically. We go to shows together. So you you have the background. And you talk a lot. Like, I don't talk a lot. And I, I don't know. Uh... I kind of keep things moving, but I know I can laser focus. Remember the Cyclops comparison? Yeah. From X-Men? Like, I know I, you can fill in all those gaps. Yeah. I just point you in the direction, and you fill in, in all the gaps, and uh, you're it. That's it. I'm a rudderless boat. Like, I can <laughs> fucking just... It's funny. I actually... You said something about my speech pattern, and uh, I've been trying to be really cognizant of it now. It's- I noticed that, because, like, I say something... And then I expect you to start up, and I'll notice there'll be, like, a gap. And you won't say anything, and I'm like, oh, he knows now. I <laughs> I also have been really trying to, like, uh, breathe a little yeah. bit more. 
when yeah. I speak. Because it's back and forth. It's conversational. There was one episode, and I, I can't pinpoint exactly what it was, but I was like, I was just flipping through the episodes just to like listen to something. And I was like, oh, let me just like check out some of the older episodes. And there's one part where I'm talking, and you can literally hear, I'm like, so I'm sorry. And it's the inhale of me just like, I finally was done talking, and it's like, it's it's hard. I'm like, oh my god, I, that was a solid like seven and a half minutes of me just talking. I don't know how you do it. And I, back in the day, I was too shy to like break in, and I I didn't want to like sound like I was mean or something. But no one wants to listen to anyone talk for like five minutes in a row. No, it ha- you have to like mix it up. Like it, me, you guest, me, you, me, you, me, you guest. Like yeah, you know. it, the only format that works for is if someone's giving a speech, and even then, it's fucking almost interminably boring. Yeah, you have to be like a presenter at TED or something, and even then, no one wants to hear that unless you're like a nerd or something. Yeah, I I can only stand one person talking. I even found it now, and this is something that I've I've gotten from you is that like I started getting annoyed with stand up comedy. Yeah. And I I I've always been like I don't care. I'll I'll watch like terrible Netflix specials. Like I watched that what was the the, the guy that does it with no shirt on? That fucking idiot. Uh Bert, Bert Kreischer. <laughs> I, I don't like, even, I don't even know who that is. Yeah, fucking I watched that whole thing. It's him without a shirt on. He tells one really awesome story about him robbing a train in Russia when he was on a school trip for his Russian class in college. It's fucking hilarious. The other 40 minutes is really hard to listen to. <laughs> And it's so distracting that he has no shirt on that I'm like, wow, this guy is like, all right. He seems like he's really fun to be around at a party. And he seems like he's super entertaining in small portions. But when you put him on a stage for 55 minutes, I was like, I, yeah, if, if comedy was like two jokes, I might be into it, but I don't want to listen to anybody for that long. I don't want to listen to myself for that long. And speaking of, uh, yeah. We're over time. Yeah. We thank you for tuning in with us once again. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Yeah!